Welcome to the Inside the Board Study Smarter series dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed on your exam. Hello, everyone. It's Patrick Beeman, your host. This is an episode in our Step 2 and Shelf Exam Study Smarter series. Inside the boards, it's high-yield med-ed for free. Here we go. Hello, Boards Insiders. This is Nick Nissen. I'm here today with Dr. David Pewter, and we are going to be discussing the psychiatry clerkship and about, you know, some of the most important topics for kind of orienting you to your clerkship in order to to do well, and as well as maybe some of the bread and butter pieces of diagnoses and, and things to look out for when you're assessing patients. So welcome to the show, Dr. Pewter. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. So, for those of you who may be aware, Dr. David Pewter has a popular podcast on psychiatry and psychotherapy that I highly suggest. I personally am a fourth-year medical student applying to psychiatry, and I really love his show. Um, It's full of really good information and really deep dives into different medications, different aspects of psychotherapy. Um, So I've been a big fan of his show, and that's why I reached out and thought he would be great for this series. So he went to UC Berkeley, uh, where he majored in molecular and cellular biology and was a competitive rower on the Cal Rowing team. I read a little bit about you beforehand. So, <laughs> uh, and then he went to the Loma Linda School of Medicine, and that is where he completed his psychiatry residency as well. And that's where he finds himself today. Yeah. Is there any major things I, good. I missed there? Uh, you know, I love, um, I love teaching. I do a lot of supervision. I meet with medical students a lot. And I'm, I'm really, I'm really passionate. And what gives me the most meaning in life is to think that through education, I can influence people to be better clinicians, better psychiatrists, better, better mental health professionals. And if I can do that, it just, it just means a lot to me. Uh, and I think there's kind of like a multiplier effect in that. So that's what gets me excited. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, so speaking of which, since you're working with a lot of medical students, you know, it, what, what would be some of the first things that you would say to orient someone as they're preparing for their psychiatry clerkship and, you know, want to do really well? Yeah, you know, th- so there's the basic stuff of like showing up on time, listening to your residents and attendings on what they specifically want from you, mm-hmm. you know, thinking through why is this person still in the hospital? you know, what is going to be needed to happen to get this person out of the hospital. Um, and then kind of organizing your presentation around that, you know, so those things are helpful. I would say one of the biggest differences between psychiatry and other specialties is for us, treatment starts from the first time that you meet a patient. So unlike other specialties, you know, that you're getting a diagnosis and then you're going to be prescribing medications mm-hmm. or surgery, you know, and that's the treatment. We really think that the the encounter, you know, you relating to the person that is in front of you in a, in a connecting way, in an empathic way, is really the treatment or part of the treatment. And I can't emphasize this more. Medical students have more time with patients in the inpatient setting and should take that time to really build that connection. And you'll find that patients will be more likely to follow our recommendations if you have that strong connection. So they'll be more likely to take the medications to stay in the psychiatric hospital as long as we need to treat them, to do follow-up like therapy and psychiatry visits. So that would be like point number one is like treatment starts from the very beginning. Yeah. 
The second thing I would say is that it's really important to seek to try to understand the patient and to understand them and to connect with them on a moment-to-moment basis. Mm. So can you see the moment-to-moment change in emotion? Can you relate to the patient, your understanding of them, and have the patient correct you if you don't understand them Mm -hmm. as much as they would like you to? So, you know, just listening and, and practicing listening well, I recommend not staring at the computer the whole time when you're talking to a patient mm-hmm. on the psychiatric hospital, you know, sure, have some notes, but sparingly, mm-hmm. 90% of the time you should be looking at them, you know, watching their expressions and then thinking about how to change the way that you're going to interact with them based on those expressions. So, if they all of a sudden look down, have a sad face, you know, maybe it's shame, maybe they're covering their body, you know, what, what about what they just shared caused them to have shame and can you empathize with the distress of the shame and say something like, you know, I know it's really hard to talk about these things and I want to thank you for for sharing with me and I know it can be really hard to expose parts of ourselves that we we don't want exposed, you know, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, can you from the very beginning of your encounter start to put out little empathy nuggets, you know, so if they, if they're angry or if they're sad, you know, just connecting, you know, Hey, I hear you're really frustrated and it makes sense because of this, this, and this, you know, you don't want to be in the hospital right now. And it makes sense that you don't want to be here and you would like to get out. And I would like to help you get out actually, you know, maybe not today, but maybe you're not saying that, but it's like, you know, can you communicate to them that you are seeing things from their perspective? Yeah. Okay. One one thing that I've been learning in this cognitive behavioral therapy course that I've been in is a couple different approaches to empathy. One of them being what they call thought empathy of repeating back the thoughts that the person's saying. So this is simply saying back to them their own words. So if they say, well, I just, I, I feel so overwhelmed when I come home and, and my husband treats me like that. And you say, yeah, I hear you that you feel so overwhelmed when you go home and you're treated like that. So, repeating it back in their own words. And another form of empathy being feeling empathy when you kind of take what they say and you come up with your own sort of guess of, a, of an emotion that might explain that. So, you say, I feel really overwhelmed when I come home and my husband treats me like that. And you say, yeah, that must really feel almost defeating to walk into your home and, and, uh, and not be able to find peace there kind of coming up with something like that. And and if someone's angry or, or kind of confrontational, looking for whatever could be the truth in whatever they're saying. So, if they're really angry about, oh, the treatment here has been so terrible, uh, you can say, yeah, you're right. You really haven't been getting the experience that you were, that you were looking for. Uh, it, kind of validating it. No matter, no matter what it is, you can find sort of a neutral way to validate it that really kind of quenches the flames. And yeah, and that will come up all the time in the psychiatry clerkship. Those are excellent. All of those are excellent. I would add, especially when the things um, are very foreign to us, it can be harder to empathize. Mm-hmm. So, for example, someone's having delusions that there's a chip in their brain and that's very distressing. So, I don't want to co-author it and agree that there's a chip in their head, but at the same time, I can empathize with the distress. So, find the piece that that you can agree with. Right. Like, it would be very distressing to feel like there's a chip in your head and people are watching you. Do you feel safe here? Do you feel like we're watching you? Do you feel like this is a safe place for you? Yeah. And just saying something like that can be very can be very kind. It can be very compassionate. Other things that might be hard to empathize with is if they're upset at the treatment team. Mm-hmm. You know, you guys are holding me against my will and I just want to go home, you know. Mm-hmm. And some of those things are the most difficult things. Like you are literally the one in 
the way of the patient achieving their goal, you know, so the, the anger is directed at you. And so agreeing with what you can agree with, you know, like, hey, I agree, it would be very frustrating to be kept somewhere against your will. And then see if you can align with their goals. And are there any other goals that are competing with the goal of just getting out of the hospital? You know, like earlier, you told me that one of your goals is to not be as depressed and to have good connection with your family. And I want to help you with that and also help you get out of the hospital. So I'm wondering how we can develop a plan that works, that allows you to accomplish all your goals, you know, and in a way that's safe. Yeah. So empathy is, is, and psychiatry rotation, it's a good place to practice this. Mm And, uh, you know, have your resident, if, if they're watching you, ask them for feedback. You know, one of the most connecting things you can do to the people who are your supervisors are asking them for feedback and being willing to receive it as well. One of the most difficult things is when I come across medical student or resident that just doesn't want to learn mm. or doesn't value input, you know, mm. and it can be very off-putting to be in a position where you, you're here you're here to train, you're here to learn and grow. And yet it is hard to receive feedback. Of course, it's always hard to receive feedback, but the more you can ask for it and the more you can learn to tolerate it and, you know, see it as information and not go all bad on one piece of negative feedback, Mm. you know, I think it'll, it'll allow you to grow. Yeah. Awesome. Well, so kind of, I think we started a bit with, you know, building rapport with your patients and getting to know your patients, making them feel comfortable and then being able to provide that empathy. And I think one thing, uh, the next thing perhaps for us to cover would be, you know, how do you even do the psychiatric interview? What would be some key components of it and things that we definitely don't want to miss? Yeah. So I actually, um, it was episode one of my podcast. I do a deep dive on this, but let's do it because this is, this is so important thinking through. So I like to think of like the six boxes of psychiatry. Mm-hmm. And the first one is kind of the HPI, history of present illness, um, past psychiatric history, family history. The second box is the medical history. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, the third box is like the social history, the developmental history. The fourth box is substance use. Mm-hmm. The fifth box is the, the mental status. And the sixth box is the, your formulation. So your assessment, your plan. And all HMP should have this. You should um, not miss one of these boxes, okay? Because each box is as important as the other box. So, for example, um, medical history. Like, don't forget your medical history. It's on your mind. You're coming from other rotations where you're evaluating medical history. And in psychiatry, these things can cause, you know, medical issues can cause psychiatric issues. So, let me give you an example. Obstructive sleep apnea. Mm -hmm. You know, if someone's really tired and they say they're falling asleep at the car or they're falling asleep in different situations, obstructive sleep apnea could be the cause and could be provoking the depression. And you can't treat the depression successfully unless you also treat the obstructive sleep apnea with a CPAP or a dental appliance. So, other things is like traumatic brain injury. You know, traumatic brain injury, if you miss that, you may think that a person is bipolar yeah. or you may think a person is uh, schizophrenic where really it's just they've had a couple really bad head injuries and they're irritable and they're impulsive and then when there's some sensorium drops you know their total brain function maybe a little alcohol or and they put some testosterone on board and they're sleep deprived it's like all of a sudden they're doing things that look fairly manic mm-hmm. so getting a history and the temporal relationship of when these things happened and then when the symptoms happened you know mm-hmm. Other things are like strokes, you know, did the stroke precede the mood disorder? Thyroid issues, like are they hypothyroid, which can lead to depression? Hyperthyroid, do they have autoimmune diseases? Do they have rheumatologic diseases and they're on steroids? There's a couple times where, you know, it's been the steroids. The steroids are the Mm -hmm. issue. The steroids can cause all psychiatric issues. And so, 
understanding which medications they're on and if any of the medications they're on can provoke psychiatric issues. Mm. So that's like one box, right? And that's as important as any other box. And as physicians and as psychiatrists, we will see that, whereas other people, maybe therapists um, that they're seeing outpatient, will not see those components as like, they, they may just miss it. Um, another box here is uh, substances, you know, like, so if someone's using methamphetamines and they come in with something that looks like a psychotic episode or a manic episode, you know, you're asking yourself, is a patient with schizophrenia using methamphetamines? Or is the methamphetamines looking like something like schizophrenia or mania? Mm -hmm. Did they have episodes of psychosis or mania outside of substance use? Mm -hmm. What is their brain like off of meth? And, you know, so meth, if they're smoking meth, maybe for the next three days they're crashing, they're sleeping all day long, they're irritable. That's not mania, mm -hmm. okay? person who's manic will come into the hospital and it may take three or four days to get them to sleep more than six hours a night, even on heavy antipsychotics and lithium, Depakote, you know? So, how someone arrives to the hospital, how quickly they get better tells you something. Mm -hmm. Other drugs that you should be really curious about are things like fentanyl, opiates. Uh, nowadays, we're having an opiate epidemic, but specifically, the third wave is fentanyl and fentanyl analogs. And um, a lot of you may miss this because it's actually not the history they're going to give you. A lot of people don't know they're taking fentanyl. They think they're taking street heroin. It's also in cocaine. It's in methamphetamines. But you may see the withdrawal effect, right? You, so, you may see the classic signs of withdrawal of opiates. And so, that could be something on your radar. So, that's one of the boxes and kind of doing a, a short glimpse at each one here. Alcohol is another thing that you really need a good history of. How much alcohol? Mm -hmm. um, how frequently? When did the mood symptoms start versus when did the alcohol start? What started first? I've had a couple manic patients who in getting a clear history, it did end up that they had true bipolar, true mania, and they used alcohol to calm themselves down when they're having a manic episode. So, it's not as easy as, oh, it's just alcohol, right? So, we have to kind of get a full history and sometimes getting a good history from their loved ones, their wife or their mom or dad can be helpful as well mm -hmm. there. And then the last substance to kind of really zoom in on is uh, marijuana. Now, marijuana, if it's especially high-potency marijuana, there's been studies that have linked it to psychosis. High-potency daily marijuana increases the risk of psychosis fivefold. It's something like 50% of psychosis could be prevented in places like Amsterdam hmm. because of the high-potency marijuana that's just so frequently used there. Hmm. Also, England has high-potency marijuana. And, you know, people are using waxes with high-potency marijuana now. Always check in when they're smoking. What are you smoking? What kind of marijuana are you smoking? Um, if you don't know if it's a high-potency brand, look it up. And think about how that may be relating to their presenting symptoms. So, okay. So, we've talked about the medical history. We've talked about the substance use history, which are often neglected in outpatient settings that aren't psychiatric. And now going back to like the first box, which is chief complaint, what the patient says they're coming in with. Um, I always want to put their own words in the chief complaint. Mm -hmm. I want them to tell me why today they're coming in, specifically today. So, you know, a lot of patients, they have chronic suicidal thoughts, right? So, what is it about today that led to them coming, coming in? Right. The HPI, the circumstances that led to them, you know, and if you're not careful, the circumstances can be like, 50 minutes of your interview. Mm -hmm. So, the acute stressors are important to listen to and to empathize with, but it's also important to get other things in the HPI, such as like sticky caps, you know, sleep, interest, guilt, energy, concentration, appetite, psychomotor agitation, retardation, suicidality. 
you get the dig fast, you know, the mood up, distractibility, impulsivity, grandiosity, flight of ideas, activity increase, sleep deficit, talkativeness, and other things like psychosis, auditory hallucinations, visual hallucinations, delusions, paranoia, anxiety symptoms. I also like to look at confusion, Mm -hmm. you know, like, can this person spell world backwards? Can they count from 21 down by threes? And then some of the personality type of symptoms like chronic suicidality. Right. Chronic suicidality starting in adolescence, borderline personality disorder until proven otherwise. Mm-hmm. Like it's pretty much pathognomonic for borderline personality disorder, which is really just a history of chronic trauma starting at a very, very young age. Yeah. Often a stream disconnection from their primary caregivers, disorganized attachment style, and dissociation starting in adolescence. And dissociation can come up with uh, cutting or binging or purging or just the chronic suicidality or disconnection from the world. They feel identity crisis, right? Mm -hmm. They have like something called like identity diffusion where they don't really know who they are. They don't know what their goals are. They may not know what their gender is. They may not know know, what they want to do in the future. And it's just this pervasive identity crisis, right? Mm -hmm. And I I think one thing as a third-year medical student that I need to get comfortable with was parsing out the aspects of the suicidality to assess for risk. And so... You know, first of all, it's important to know that you don't increase the person's risk of suicide by asking about their suicidality. So you should feel comfortable asking someone if they if they are feeling suicidal or if they've thought about harming themselves or thought about killing themselves. And then to assess for the risk of looking for whether or not they have had ideas or if they have a plan to harm themselves, and then if they have intent as well, if this is something that they want to do and that they're actively trying to do. And then some things that, that you can ask about as well as a medical student is about whether they've done any sort of preparatory behaviors, so whether they've written any letters to people, whether they've started to give things away to other people, or whether they've kind of started packing up their things. And then if they do have an idea or a plan asking of whether they have access to lethal means, um, so like asking about whether or not they have a gun in the home, um, that would be something that would really increase their risk. And then if they did have some other plan of whether or not they've actually walked towards that place or started to do some of those initial things. Those are really big in, in being able to, you know, really assess how risky this patient's situation is. Yeah, all of that is completely true. And I would add, you know, is this someone with borderline personality sort of with a chronic history of suicidality who's now had, you know, maybe a breakup and so they're acutely suicidal? And usually in the psychiatric hospital, within two or three days, they can snap out of it. Versus is this a melancholic depression? Men kill themselves four times more than women. Women will attempt more, but men will actually are a lot more lethal because of guns, because if you're in a country without guns, then it's hanging. And so, is this a person who has more of the melancholic, the early morning anxiety, the depression with the psychomotor agitation or retardation, the weight loss, the high guilt, the low energy, the really poor concentration, the poor sleep, so hard time falling asleep, hard time staying asleep, waking up early. I think anxiety is something that we should be able to treat in an acute hospitalization. Acesthesia is something that can really worsen someone's outcome. So if you start an antipsychotic, you start something that has dopamine in it and cause acesthesia. Acesthesia is an internal restlessness and an external restlessness. So you start the antipsychotic and the next day they're extremely restlessness. They're pacing around the hall. This is acesthesia. And we never want to discharge a patient with acesthesia. So this is something that we can either treat it with some propanolol, we can treat it with some mirtazapine at night, we can treat it with 
clonopin, but it's something to really pay attention to because it does increase the risk of death, essentially. Uh, the other thing to pay attention to in suicidality is the desire and do they have reasons that would keep them from killing themselves. So someone may have a desire to end their life, but they have grandchildren or they have a loved one that they feel like they couldn't leave behind. But the beliefs that they have around suicide are really, really important. So we know like certain spiritual beliefs actually are very protective against suicide. So if they believe they're going to go to hell, they'll be less likely to commit suicide. If it's culturally accepted in their way of understanding the world to commit suicide, they, they actually will have a higher likelihood of suicide. So the beliefs and the thoughts around what happens are very important. So we, we want to ask about like, what are the things that would keep you or have kept you from actually following through? And then thinking through how strong those are and what their beliefs are about what would happen if they die. Mm. People who get close to suicide start to believe that they, the world would be better off, their family would be better off if they were dead. And when I really looked into this, I found that it's both the negative sort of belief, right, which is common in depression. You have a lot more cognitive distortions. Mm -hmm. So, you, you get all or nothing thinking, you overgeneralize the negative, you have this negative mental filter. And then on top of that, the final common pathway of depression is to push people away, actually. So, to isolate more and more. So, a lot of people are very depressed or psychotic or, you know, have been having mental health issues for years, end up sort of isolating and pushing people away more. So, it's, it's both. The first one being that they actually do have people who care about them, but they just, through co the cognitive distortions, they stop seeing that. Right. And the second is also true, where like the final common pathway of, of depression is to be more isolated. Right. All right. So, working through the HPI, we talked about depression, mania, as well as schizophrenia, and a couple of, of those other symptoms to screen for. I, I want to, mm -hmm. I definitely want to add about mania. What I'm looking for, for true mania, mm -hmm. okay, and I think it's it's been overdiagnosed and so people will come in with a label of bipolar right. and it's like probably more personality disorder type of thing or it's more drugs. But for true mania, what I'm looking for is progressive weeks of decreased sleep. In the middle of the night, what are they doing? Are they doing goal-directed activity or are they just watching TV? If they're just watching TV, that's probably not what I would see with mania. What I would see with mania is that they have goal-directed activity. They're connecting the Mayan calendar with the end of the world and they need to talk to Donald Trump because he's going to save the world or something like that, you mm -hmm. know? And and then are they doing things that are, are grandiose? So, the grandiosity is like they feel like they are potentially the savior of the world or, or something like that. They're talking fast. They have a flight of ideas. They're more impulsive. But the grandiosity is usually there in true mania. And then when they enter into the psychiatric hospital, once again, it's harder to get these people to sleep. So, if you like at our psychiatric hospital, we have a really good um, way of assessing how much sleep they're getting per night. And these patients will come in and they'll be up sleeping maybe three, four hours a night. They'll be up the rest of the night. Mm -hmm. And even on 30 milligrams of olanzapine and, you know, 1200 milligrams of lithium, mm -hmm. they will still be up. And then we add on maybe some other sleeping meds. And it's like day five when they get that eight hours of sleep. Mm. So, if someone has borderline personality disorder and you put them on five milligrams of olanzapine and some trazodone, maybe 50 milligrams, they're asleep for the night and they just got 10 hours, you know, or eight hours of sleep. So, that, that would be very, very unlikely for someone with true mania. Yeah. That would be more like pointing towards like something like a personality yeah. type of issue. Okay. So, so, moving through those boxes, was there anything else in the HPI for us to cover? Or? 
I think I think it's good to touch on um, schizophrenia mm-hmm. a little yep. bit. So with schizophrenia, the most common symptoms are the auditory hallucinations mm-hmm. and the delusions and the negative symptoms. So usually they have a history of not dating a lot as a prodrome. So it's not like they have a history of 20 volatile relationships with the opposite sex. Or, you know. And so these people are a little bit more isolated. And then when they have the symptoms, the auditory hallucinations, the most common for women are you're a slut or you're a whore. For men, it's you're gay, you're stupid, that kind of thing. Or for women, it's like you're ugly. You know, those are the common auditory hallucinations. So I actually ask those like, hey, do you ever have voices that you hear in your head kind of derogatory? Or I don't use the word derogatory, but bad things that are said to you about you. Yes. And they won't tell you if they're a man that they have these, that they're gay or they're, you know, they're not going to tell you. But if you, if you ask them, they'll say, yeah, that, that happens. Or you'll kind of get the nod like, oh, yeah, yeah. And so the delusions you may not see right? But you may witness them. So, they may not eat any food that isn't coming out of a can or they may kind of like isolate in their room and like try to hide from everyone, mm-hmm. you know? So, some of the delusions are things that you may actually get from the nursing staff and it's really good to like check in with the, the nurse that's been following them. Hey, any sign out, anything that's happened and try to get try to get them to describe what actually happened. So, sometimes in the notes, you'll hear things like responding to internal stimuli. So, like, actually ask the nurse, like, hey, what what do you mean by that? Like, what actually happened? And they'll say, well, the patient was standing in the room batting at something that we couldn't see in the corner, okay? And so, I actually would put that as, like, what actually is happening, mm-hmm. you know? I would put that word for word. I wouldn't put, like, big words like responding to internal stimuli. And the last important thing to really not miss is catatonia. So, catatonia can be from depression, can be from bipolar, can be from psychosis, mm-hmm. And catatonia is missed. Like every time I come on and even the residents will miss it. So, you're like an all-star if you can start to see a catatonic patient. And it's like one in 50 patients okay, mm-hmm. that come into a psychiatric hospital. So, you may see it, you may not see it, but they come in and it's, part, it's, it's like they were depressed and then they stopped eating and drinking. Okay. If someone stopped drinking and then they get hypotensive, like that's catatonia until proven otherwise. If they feel like they're frozen in their body... Mm-hmm. And they feel this intense anxiety and they may have the the slowing down of their movements. They may repeat things back to you. So, you ask them a question, they may repeat the question. They may repeat their answer to the question. In the history, I just caught one this last weekend and it was, I just had this gut feeling like, okay. And then I, I checked his range of motion and he was kind of globally stiff in a way that he couldn't relax his muscles. So, I gave him, you know, one milligram of Ativan IM and I came back half an hour later and his speech wasn't as delayed. He had about a three-second delay. It went down to about half a second delay just from one dose of Ativan. And so, you know, the treatment is to really increase that Ativan and to keep it high and to get out of the catatonia. And you know you've pushed the Ativan too high when there's lateral nystagmus when you move your finger back and forth. And that usually happens at around 15 milligrams of Ativan. So, we we push it pretty high. And the other treatment is ECT. And one of the mistakes I made early on as a resident is I thought you give the test dose of Ativan and then you schedule the ECT and you wait for the ECT. And um, so, we had this guy and he was completely locked into his body. Mm -hmm. And um, he was like, please give me more Ativan. But it was more like, please give me more (laughs) Ativan. And I was like, I'm sorry, man, you're going to have to wait for ECT. It was like five days, you know, they had to do the first test dose of ECT and then they did the other one. He got better eventually, but I think in retrospect, I would have 
dose the Ativan up until, Mm -hmm. you know, the night before ECT or something Mm -hmm. like that. Yeah, catatonia, man. Read up on that. I'm going to do a full episode on that in the future on my podcast. I'm working with a resident doing it like a deep dive. I want to look at like all the articles on catatonia. It's such a rock star thing to catch. Right. Like if you're a medical student and you catch catatonia, they'll look at you different the rest of your rotation. <laughs> and the patient can be so much better after a couple of hours with some Ativan or some other benzo. Oh, yeah. It's amazing. Um, have you ever caught any of that or seen yeah, that? Yeah, I've yet? seen it. Yeah, there was this this patient that just had this this waxy stiffness like you were describing with the muscles being tight. And, you know, it's just like as if you were doing, uh, you know, looking for the, the passive range of motion on the on the arms. You, you do that same exam and, you know, you'll see that if you leave an arm up and you let it go, it will stay there or it might drift down slowly as if it were made out of wax. And, uh, and that would be kind of one of the easier ways to catch catatonia. And yeah, she, she was better after, you know, two or three hours with some, with some Ativan. So it's pretty impressive. One of the other sort of pearls that I've learned about catatonia just this year is how long do you treat them with Ativan? Mm. So you want to get them out of catatonia, then you want to treat the underlying issue. Mm-hmm. Okay. So if it's schizophrenia, you treat that. If it's depression, you treat that. You really want an SNRI. If it's depression, you want some norepinephrine reuptake. But then it's like, okay, how long do you leave them on the Ativan? Hmm. And you want to go, once you get them on that dose, and it may be like, I have one patient on eight milligrams outpatient. It's like, and she wanted to drop her dose down two milligrams. I'm like, no, 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 Mm -hmm. no. We're going to go down half a milligram every Mm -hmm. month. Um, So, if they're on 16, that may be like a two-year taper. And that's Mm -hmm. okay. That's okay because the risk of going back into catatonia Mm -hmm is so much worse. Mm -hmm. So, that was like just a complete pearl that I got from Dr. Cummings. He's like this amazing psychopharmacologist mentor. I love hearing hearing him on your show. He's so knowledgeable. He is so respected in my Mm -hmm. community. Like- I can see why. Even like the top psychopharmacologists at my institution, Mm -hmm. like when they get stuck, they ask him. So, I was like, I got to get this guy on my show. Well, great. So, yeah. So, catatonia will make you an all-star. Catching akesthesia will make you an all-star. And, you know, talk to the resident, like, hey, could this be akesthesia? Like, the guy's restless, he just started a dopamine thing, and see what the resident has to say, and read up on that one further as Mm -hmm. well. All right, and we will stop there. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back with some more high-yield learning next time.